Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with uh, Nicholas Parisi, who's written a book about a book on Rod Serling. It's an analysis of all of um, all of Rod Serling's work, or a vast majority of it. Nicholas has delved into uh, as much of Rod Serling's work as he can. He's found old documents, documents that uh, other researchers um, probably have not seen before. Um, he's an avid fan, so he really put his heart and soul into uh, the research for this book and, and writing it. So yeah, definitely if you're a fan of, of Twilight Zone, of Rod Serling's work, Night Gallery, his sci-fi and horror stuff, but he also did dramatic work, um, and also obviously he was working at the, uh, the very start of uh, television, sort of at the start through its renaissance and that sort of thing, so lots of good uh, television history in general there. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Nicholas Parisi, author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Thank you for speaking with me. Glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, uh, let's start. Um, can you tell me how you got into uh, studying and writing about um, not just Rod Serling, but, uh, you know, science fiction and, or TV? You know, how do you get into this? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, like most people, as far as Serling goes, we, you know, the Twilight Zone was what drew me into his his world. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I became a Twilight Zone fanatic from the time I first saw the show when I was around 10 years old. And so my interest in Serling began there, and it just kind of blossomed from there. As the years went on, I just became aware of all the other things that he had written and that, frankly, haven't been given enough attention. Mm-hmm. And I became, you know, interested in all of these things. I mean, he's co-writer of the original Planet of the Apes. He had all these ter- terrific shows during the golden age of television. Um, Night Gallery, of course, and, and a lot of, you know, uh, shows that no one, you know, would ever have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I so I became, you know, kind of a collector in terms of information. I just wanted to get information about his his entire career. And that's uh, that's what spawned the book essentially was that you know there was I mean he's written he wrote over 250 scripts for television and, and film mm-hmm. and so many of them are unknown to the general public and I really wanted to try to um, you know uh, bring those to light and also to provide a, a real a truly complete record of his career and and, and I think I, I accomplished that I, I, I hope I did anyway mm-hmm. so so tell me about the book then how do you, how do you lay it out you know how is it divided you know that sort of thing. Well, it, it's interesting you ask it that way because that is one of the um, one of the key things about the book. I think is the way that it is, it is structured. I think it's got a very uh, different structure to it. It's part biography. It's certainly not a biography, but there is partial biography to it. Um, but then it's part reference guide to all of these different shows, and it's part uh, critique and literary analysis of, of the different themes that Serling dealt with, and hmm. and 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 the way I structured it is 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 it strictly chronological? So it starts right at the beginning with his first shows. Well, it starts with his early life, but then when it gets into the videography, uh, you know, I call it. It starts with his first show in 1950 mm-hmm. and goes straight through uh, his death in 1975, and it just kind of goes in and out of these series and discusses the themes that he was dealing with in each of these shows. And um, you know, shifts back into biography a little bit here and there, but um, but it basically just gives you a picture of his entire writing life mm-hmm. um, through through the stories themselves, through the shows themselves. So his, uh, I, I'm not sure how much radio 
how many radio plays he wrote. Do you, I guess you don't address those or how, how do you I, approach it? Actually, no, actually I do. I do. And in fact, that was one of the things that had uh, not been covered at all really in, in prior publications is, is his radio scripts and his, he had one particular radio series that he created mm-hmm. called It Happens to You. And this was real golden age, you know, uh, radio it was from 1954. And it was produced in Cincinnati, where he had previously worked and gone to, well, he went to school in Ohio, but um, he worked in Cincinnati. And, and he produced it in Cincinnati, but it was it actually was broadcast nationally on the NBC network in the summer of 1954. Mm-hmm. And in prior publications, I had always seen this, this series referenced as um, his proposed series or his potential radio series, they always kind of gave it the impression that it never was produced, but it was. It aired It aired for, I believe, 13 weeks in, in the summer of 1954. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the scripts that he used on that show were never produced anywhere else. So you have, um, this is the only example of these particular shows. And, and two of the shows still exist um, on, on tape. So, you know, so those are out there. But yeah, so he, he had that series and he also, he broke in as a radio writer in 1949. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first scripts that he ever sold were to a series called Grand Central Station, mm-hmm. um, old time radio show that, uh, he sold a few scripts to. Um, so yeah, he began in radio and he, um, went back to it for this particular series. And then, you know, later on he hosted a, a series called The Zero Hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a syndicated dramatic uh, series. They didn't do any writing for that that show that we only hosted it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do get into that as well. Yeah. So I'm. Um, it's kind of interesting that you know he's he's a writer. Um, how did he end up getting on screen? Is that something he wanted to do, or is it just kind of circumstance brought him? You know. <laughs> well. Um, it, it, he, I, I think it's pretty clear that he did want to be on screen. I mean, there's enough there's enough evidence that he was a bit of a hand himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, when he was younger, he, he did some acting. I mean, he acted in, you know, school plays and that kind of thing from the time he was five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he acted in his own radio productions um, when he did actually have something left out. And when he was going to Antioch College in Ohio, he mm-hmm. created the radio series there as well. So he acted in those particular shows. And I think he did always want to be on screen in some respect but he knew he wasn't you know an actor he knew he wasn't a great actor and plus he was five feet five inches tall and mm-hmm. that wasn't exactly leading man material so um so when it came to the twilight zone um you know he was obviously already introducing the series mm-hmm. uh you know narrating it and before the second season started and this is actually just to kind of debunk a myth that uh, has been spread about the twilight zone the, the myth is that uh, CBS originally wanted Orson Welles to narrate the, to narrate and host the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. and that and that Rod Serling kind of lobbied for the role and, and got it. Well, that's that's not exactly true. What happened actually was that Serling was the narrator. They, they had another narrator originally, but they knew he wasn't really uh, you know going to be permanent. So Serling got the job pretty quickly at the beginning. But what happened was after the after the first season was done, and they were getting ready for a second season, the network thought, you know, if we have an on screen presence here it might add a little uh, pizzazz to the show maybe it gets some some attention maybe we should contact orson wells and at that point that's when they decided that they would try to get orson wells but um but orson wells uh 
you know, he would have wanted to be paid, obviously. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and they were already trying to cut the budget. They certainly weren't going to add budget for a, for a, a narrator. So, so Rod again said, hey, 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 if you want to be, somebody to be on screen, I'll be on screen. Mm-hmm. And, um, so he got it. So, so that's the way it happened. But I mean, you know, over the years, of course, Serling kind of, um, played up the idea that he, he kind of fell into the job and he didn't really like it very much. But I think that's him being a little, um, you know, uh, humble or, I don't know, a little facetious, I guess. He, he, he wanted the job and he got it and he liked it. I mean, he was nervous doing those introductions, but he liked the, the notoriety that, that came along with being recognizable. Mm-hmm. So reading some of his bio info, I got the impression he would, he, he liked to talk a lot. Um, so how does, and, and I'm trying to reconcile, maybe it's not hard to reconcile, you know, if you like to talk a lot, can you translate that to writing a lot too? Is that essentially what happened? He, he wrote down everything he wanted to say. Well, yeah, to some extent, you know, Rod was just, he was a very articulate guy mm-hmm. and he was a very thoughtful guy and he was um, always a talker um, back to when he was a kid, when he was really young. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a story in Mark Zickrey's book uh, that uh, Robert Sterling, his brother tells about how um, he was such a, non-stop talker Rod was um, that one time when they were going to take a trip in the car from I believe from Syracuse to to Binghamton or something and back then that was like a four hour drive now you know because the cars back then you know go 40 miles an hour or something but he said to his father he said you know let's just not respond to anything Rod says and see how long it takes him to shut up you know see if he, see if he ever notices that nobody else is talking but him and he says I swear to you he talked nonstop for the entire four hours from one, from one stop to the other just just continued to talk and we got when we got there we just died laughing as, as you know got out because we knew that would happen mm-hmm. but so so he was always a talker and and he was in on the debate team in high school and and you know so it just kind of uh, they, they do go together somewhat writing and talking he he was um an articulate guy, as I said, and that that lent itself to being an articulate writer, if you can if you can say that, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that's um, and yeah, he he did um, he wrote he I don't know any any writer who wrote more from the heart than Rod Serling, you know, mm-hmm. he um, so sometimes to his detriment, you know, that he wrote with his heart on his sleeve, and you could see exactly what he was you know wanted to say in a, in a particular script, but. You know, um, if you were in the choir, you didn't mind being preached to, and I, and and that's 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 where I am. I mean, I, I'm definitely part of the choir, and I I don't mind that 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 form of preaching. Rod Sterling just said it like he wanted to say it, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't, and he didn't mince words. Does your book go into where um, his concern for social issues began? Do you, do you delve back into that at all, or a little bit? I don't. I don't. Um, I don't purport to, you know, to, to identify, you know, the beginning, you know, like this is where, you know, his, his awareness began or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do, but I do, of course, address the fact that he was always this way. Um, he, um, he believed he was just, he was just, um, adamantly anti-prejudice. He was just, um, that was his big, his big bugaboo was, was the idea of prejudice. And it went back to when he was, a kid, um, you know, it's you. You could speculate about him growing up in a Jewish family, and he he did experience some anti-Semitism. There are stories about him uh, being held out of a um, fraternity at one point because he was Jewish, or he was he was dating non-Jewish non-Jewish girls, and you know the whole you know the, that came about at one point. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, some of it was due to that, but I think it was just kind of something in him, just something in his nature that that lent itself to that, and he tried to address the issue uh, frequently in his writing. 
and sometimes he was successful and sometimes the censors got to him and said no you can't say that you know but mm-hmm. but um but yeah so he he was very socially aware and socially conscious from the time he was he was a kid and in fact they give an example the um the binghamton um the high school newspaper and this is when he was in 10th or 11th grade uh, described him as always as always being ready for a heated debate on virtually any subject. <laughs> this is you know, and this is when he was in tenth uh, or eleventh grade. So, yeah. so yeah, he was all, always that way. So, are there um, any main themes or issues uh, that you'd like to mention that you highlight, or you know, you, or you can keep that for the readers to discover when they buy the book? Well, no, I mean, I can certainly uh, you know talk about a few of them. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. I can give you one just 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 my kind of. Um, point, if there was one point in the book that I really wanted to make, just to sum it up, is, is really that Rod Sterling was more than the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't mean to say to shortchange the Twilight Zone at all, because that's I love the Twilight Zone more than anybody, and, 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 I, and I, I dedicate a huge portion of the book to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of one of my points of the book, themes of the book, was that he was so much more, he, he wrote so much more, and he wrote so much more that was good. And I think that gets lost in the shuffle. I think that um, if you read some of the biographical material on Sterling, or, or you, you even you know any of the biographical material that's out there, mm-hmm. you kind of get a picture of Sterling that I don't think is accurate. And, and the picture I think you get, you'll very very easily get, is that Sterling was kind of a middling writer who broke through with a show called Patterns on the Craft Theater in 1955, mm-hmm. and that he was overnight a success. And then the next year he, he hit again with Requiem for a Heavyweight. And then he, then he did the Twilight Zone, and the Twilight Zone was as brilliant and great as it was. And then after that, it just kind of was a steady downhill fall. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I don't think any of that is true. I think that's nonsense. I think that he wrote a lot of other stuff that was great mm-hmm. before the Twilight Zone, and he wrote a lot of stuff that was great after the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one of the things I try to bring out is some of the shows you may have heard are terrible, or even from Serling himself, because Serling was one of his, was not one of, he was his own worst critic. Mm-hmm. harshest critic he was so hard on himself all the time so some of the shows you may have heard rod serling you know um criticize the most you know terribly uh turn out to be really good shows so i i so i wanted to bring some light to those and as far as you know what we're talking about as far as the social issues yeah i, I get into very i get into the emma till case um you know pretty deeply that was the mm-hmm. case of um you know if anybody doesn't know shame on them but they but but i'll repeat you know these uh mm-hmm. case of a 14 year old african-american kid in mississippi who was lynched mm-hmm. uh for allegedly whistling at a white woman mm-hmm. and rod sterling was just terrified was just terribly affected by this and he wanted to dramatize it and he couldn't he just he just couldn't break through the censors and i i tell a version of this story i think in the book that you'll have never read before mm-hmm. uh, about the censorship or lack of censorship that he actually did face with cbs over over that particular script called noon on doomsday mm-hmm. uh, so that's yeah that's one of the things i get into okay so can you tell me about the uh, resources he used to do this research sure um you know serling was um he was a prolific writer not just of, of scripts but of correspondence he he kept all his letters, and I swear it's. It, you would think that he responded to every fan letter he ever got. Hmm. I mean, he responded in you know in, in his own you know signed. I mean, personalized. He, he responded to everything. So and he kept everything. So there are uh, archives um, around the country. The main archive is in Wisconsin. It's the Wisconsin State Historical Society. Um, they have a collection of eighty-one boxes of Serling scripts, uh, correspondence. Um, 
contracts and mis- you know miscellaneous things mm-hmm. um, that you are free to go through you know with a, with a with a, an appointment you know so I so I spend a good deal of time there going through all of that stuff. Um, there's another, another archive at UCLA um, that's about uh, I think it's 40 boxes something like that same thing of scripts and etc. Et so I went through that. There is another archive at I think a college where he um, taught late in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that has some some material that isn't available elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Antioch College in, in Ohio and, and there was um, I found some really interesting stuff in the in the Antioch College. Uh, archive itself that I had not seen quoted anywhere or referenced anywhere else. Hmm. Um, so I went there. And then the other thing I did was, and this was the most enjoyable part of the, of the writing and research, was I watched absolutely everything. Everything that exists, <laughs> something I watched. So uh, so I went to the Paley Center in New York City a dozen times, watching every single show that exists at the Paley Center. I, um, I went to uh, UCLA, has a couple of shows that don't exist anywhere else. I went there. I, I collected rare films that you know you know no one else really has or haven't been released commercially so hmm. so i watched watched everything and um when you think about that serling wrote 92 of the twilight zone episodes and he wrote you know and he wrote 38 of the night gallery stories so that's 130 right there and he wrote hmm. over 250 scripts so you're talking about there's 120 other scripts that are outside of twilight zone and night gallery so yeah um, and I watched a ton of those shows, and um, as I said, you know, was pleasantly surprised by by very many of them. Wow, that's pretty neat. Um, were you able to interview anyone connected to Rod Serling? Well, uh, thankfully, I, I became f- uh, fairly close friends with with Ann Serling, his daughter, mm-hmm. um, and she's she was tremendous uh, in helping me in terms of um, really just encouraging me. I, I when I first met her, I brought her essentially the outline of the book. Uh, and I had already started writing it and everything, but, mm-hmm. but I had the outline and I brought it to her and, you know, of course, not knowing how she would react. And she called me the next day and said, you know, this is wonderful. Uh, please, please finish it. Please do it. Um, it'll be great. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she ended up agreeing to write the, the foreword for, for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm so grateful for her because just that enthusiasm really, really was instrumental in, in making me complete the, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so. Other than her, I really didn't do too many um, uh, first-hand interviews, uh, a couple, but not too many because I really was dealing with the shows themselves, the scripts themselves, and the productions themselves, and, and let's face it, 98% of the people who are involved are dead now, you know, so, mm-hmm. so there wasn't too many that I really could reach even if I wanted to, so I, I really focused on just the, you know, the, the, the material itself. Mm-hmm. That way, yeah. Was there any uh, p- particular document, say script or something, that uh, that just holding really, you know, really was cool or you know special? Yeah, yeah, um, a couple actually. But well, I'll give you. Um, well, the, the the main one was I, and this is again something that I'm I'm really proud of that I was able to reveal in the book is that I was able to track down the true first draft of that Noon on Doomsday script that we mentioned, the Emmett Till case. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a script that had nobody had, had ever, you know, I, I think, I, I mean, I discovered it. Um, it was, there have been a couple of really, really in-depth studies of the Noon on Doomsday evolution from where Serling started to where the network messed with it and where it ended up. And all of those studies do not mention the actual first draft. They all they didn't have it. They didn't have access to it. Well, I was able to find it, and and yeah, you, you say about holding it. That was 
that was one of those things because I, I honestly wasn't sure it was going to be what I thought it was until I actually had it in my hands. I said, I, I can't believe this. I can't, I can't, can't believe this is actually the first draft. So, um, so that was one. And, and the other thing is the, um, at Wisconsin, when Serling donated all his materials to Wisconsin, that's how they got there. He donated all his, all of this stuff. He wrote little notes basically to himself or to, posterity really on the covers of his scripts so he would write little things about his own um assessments of the script itself or just a funny thing or whatever it may be so i mean he wrote things like um you know uh, there was a show called the new people uh that he wrote and um it was edited pretty heavily before it aired and and on the cover of the script he wrote um this was a this was a nice piece of work but abc cut 20 minutes out of it and it bled to death yeah you know? Um, things like that. He wrote, uh, you know, uh, there was a show he wrote called, well, he wrote a version of Jekyll and Hyde. This is a strange case of Jack, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that, uh, was en- ended up being rewritten and credited to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote on the cover of that, rewritten by yet another British writer. <laughs> and, and, he, and he was, and so he was, he, and that particular script, he was, he was angry about getting rewritten and he, he would write, you know, little snide remarks all over the place about, you know, about being rewritten. He was not real happy about that one. So some of the stuff you saw and you just kind of really got, got this feeling of like, almost like he was sitting there next to you, you know, telling you this stuff. It was really, really was a, a pretty cool experience. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing you found in your research? Well, I will tell you, I think that that, that Nuno Doomsday script was, was a big surprise. Um, I don't want to ruin the, the reveal in the book, but that, that was a big surprise. And beyond that, I think the biggest surprises that I had really were, um, like I was saying, the shows that turned out to be really good that he and other people had always, de- uh, you know, degraded um, or degraded. Uh, for example, I mean, things that maybe I like more than other people, but a show like uh, or a movie like The Man, let's say. Uh, the Man was a sh- uh, movie uh, starring James Earl Jones that he wrote. It was about the first African-American president, and it was based on a novel by, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to forget his name now. Um, Herbert, uh, all right, I'm going to forget his name, so, so, but it was based on a novel. And um, and you thought, I mean, it didn't do well at the box office, that's for sure. And you would, from reading about it, you think it was terrible. And, and, and I watched it, I really liked it a lot. Um, and there are certain shows that got really, got some really good reviews that you would think were universally panned. For example, Forbidden Area, the first uh, episode of Playhouse 90. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read any of the biographical material, you would think that Forbidden Area got absolutely trashed and hammered by the critics, and then the next week was Requiem for Heavyweight, which set the world on fire, and it was great, and that was it. But it turns out Forbidden Area got a cu- at least a couple, and I'm not talking about you know Podunk, Iowa. I'm talking about major newspapers, great reviews, rave reviews from a couple of papers. Mm-hmm. And I happen to like that show a lot. So things like that surprised me when I would find a show that got really good reviews that I had been led to believe were terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that was a, a very pleasant surprise to find things like that. Hmm. Was there uh, an issue that was very difficult to research that maybe you still haven't gotten your hands around or, or just took a lot of time to, to come to a conclusion? Well, yeah, uh, that is a good question. And I, you know, I did my best with this, but one of the kind of lost, um, lost treasures in the Serling catalog is this show that he wrote in Cincinnati called the storm. Um, he wrote, this is essentially right after college. He went to work for a radio station, WLW, and WLW also was in te- television, and they didn't do drama really. They did, you know, Midwestern hayride and and uh, you know really yokel kind of uh, stuff. And that was not Sterling. Sterling wanted to write real drama, and and there was a show across town at WKRC, not P, but KRC, 
um, called The Storm. It had just started, and it was, it was an original dramatic series produced in Cincinnati using all Cincinnati talent. And Sterling saw that and said, wow, okay, I can, I can get my stuff on, on this show. And he essentially took the show over. I mean, he, he, he ended up writing every episode of, of the show for <laughs> certain, for the entire second season and most of the first season. And unfortunately, this, these were live productions that were not recorded on film. So they're almost all lost. Um, but there is, it kind of depends on how you count. There are like two or three episodes that do exist of it. Um, so I was able to watch one out of those two or three, and it's, it'd be too long a story to tell you why I'm hedging on the number. But, but the scripts themselves is the real lost part because no, almost very few of the scripts, even the scripts themselves, exist in those Sterling archives that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of them that I could not even read. Uh, and so that was frustrating to not be able to get my hands on those particular scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I should say, um, one show that he did on the storm again to no surprises this is another big surprise i had was one particular show he did on the storm that i was able to talk about in the book for the first time uh again nobody's ever brought this particular show up but it is a show that rod Sterling did uh, addressing the issue of prejudice mm-hmm. on cincinnati television in 1952 and yeah it's an, and from what i can gather i think this is the first time anybody had addressed prejudice on television anywhere yeah. Uh, because it certainly was not going to be done on network television. His agent at the time told him, Rod, you know, nobody's going to touch this. You don't even bother sending it. Yeah. Uh, so they're not, they're not going to touch this. But it was done in Cincinnati. And it's a very interesting story um, about it's not a black and white issue. It's an Asian-American issue. It's a Japanese-American, Chinese-American issue. Hmm. Uh, actually, uh, yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. And again, uh, this is, you know, if you look at, I found this particular show in an old version of, it's called TV Dial Magazine. Um, it's like a version of TV Guide at the time. Mm-hmm. And if you see this particular show, the description of it, you'll see all around it. It's like you know, you know, my little Margie has a toothache, and you know, and and uh, you know, so and so has to go, you know, goes to the prom or something. And then it's you know, uh, on the storm, it's uh, a Chinese American company are run out of town because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like whoa, holy moly! It was like it might as well be radioactive on the page. You know, it's like jumps out at you like holy, you know. And that was Rod Sterling. He was he was uh, he was an innovator and a, a trailblazer on you know on that issue particularly, but in several other issues as well. It's interesting because it sounds like you know the golden age of television. I guess it it really hit in fifty four fifty five. So. It sounds like he was one of a small group of people trying to really push the envelope for something serious. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely it. Yeah, and he tried, and after Patterns, you know, was his big hit, um, and he had a little more prestige. That's when he really took it into a higher gear, and he figured, listen, I got a voice now. I can say this. I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best to do this. And you know, he ran up against a brick wall most of the time, but he at least gave it a shot. Do you know if, uh, I forget when McCarthy was doing specifically when he was going after people in Hollywood, did that affect Serling at all? Or It didn't affect him pro- professionally because uh, it did actually begin right around 1950 and 51, 52, oh, okay. very early in his career, but it certainly affected him personally. Um, he, wrote a, he wrote a letter, uh, Serling did, to the Cincinnati Inquirer uh, about McCarthy because Cincinnati, if you don't know, Cincinnati is, um, is a somewhat conservative city um usually you find cities are tend to be more liberal and you know obviously the outskirts tend to be more conservative mm-hmm. but cincinnati is a pretty conservative town and I, and I from what i gather the cincinnati inquirer was very defensive of mccarthy and certainly wrote them a letter you know ripping mccarthy up and um that was in 1950 
two or three, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't exactly risking very much because he didn't have much of a career at that at that point. But but he had <laughs> enough. He had, but, you know, but he had enough to say. Listen, this is how I feel, and I'm not going to be afraid to write to you about it. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was he was very disturbed by the by the McCarthy tactics. Mm-hmm. They took, yeah. Was there anything you discovered that emotionally moved you that uh, maybe you haven't mentioned yet? You've you've mentioned a bunch of things, but uh, anything else out there? Um, well, I mean, there there are a bunch of things that um, yeah, a bunch of things that come to mind. Uh, even not necessarily that I discovered in this research, but um, you know, there was a, a very moving letter that Serling wrote to the Los Angeles Times after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And um, you can actually probably find that online somehow if you if you Google if you Google it you might find it and it was just a just a beautiful letter talking about you know the, this tragedy this tragedy that that had happened um, that's one thing that you know when I read it it's, it it certainly gets to me um, there is another piece that Serling wrote when he was in college one of the actually one of the very first things they wrote when he returned from from war and we haven't even actually mentioned that he was you know he was he served in world war ii he right out of high school he went and volunteered for the army and he was served in the paratroopers and he saw some pretty heavy combat in in the philippines and when he came back one of the first things that he wrote was a a, a piece called first first squad first platoon it was a 38 page story that he kind of wasn't sure what he was doing with it yet. He wasn't sure if it was going to be a long, short story or maybe the start of a novel or whatever it may be. Um, but it's um, it's a, it's essentially a five-chapter story uh, that each chapter memorializes a member of the of the 11th Airborne who died in in, in service. Hmm. And uh, so it's yeah, so it's hard to read that without feeling a whole lot. It's um. It's it's in the book I say it's as raw as an open wound um, because it really is. That's what he was. That's where he was writing from from that open wound. Mm-hmm. Um, so that yeah, that is a particularly powerful piece. Even though it's very, you know, it's it's a amateurish to some, you know, to say it's, you know, and I don't say that as a you know derogatory term. He was that's what he was. He was amateur at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but even so, the power of it, the emotion of it, comes through so so clearly. Whenever Sterling was writing about the war, about battle, that, those those just can't help but get to you because he really um, he saw some terrible things and he he wrote about them. He wrote from you know from the emotion of it. Mm-hmm. So the, this the stuff um, that you analyze in the book, I guess his wartime experiences come up during some of your analysis, I guess. Or? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like I said I, I do go go strictly chronologically, so. Um, so I, my, you know, I get to his war years. I, I cover, you know, some of his service, and then the uh, war-related shows that he wrote when he came back. Mm-hmm. And then throughout his career, it comes up again and again and again. He wrote, you know, a story called "The Strike" for a, a show called Studio One, which is very good. Um, set in the, uh, you know, set in the Korean War. Actually, uh, he wrote a couple of shows for Twilight Zone that were set in wartime. Um, one was specifically set in Lady um, in the Philippine Islands, where he served. It's called the Purple Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, that one. And in that one, he actually names some of his war buddies who died um, in, 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 in Lady. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, so it comes up again and again. And it's one of those things that, you know, the, you know Carol Serling, his, his wife, his widow, um, said that the war was always with him. It never left, you know. And that for all of those guys, that's, that's the way it was, really, for any combat veteran. It never leaves. You know, it's just, that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So what do you hope the book will do? You know, a, a couple of things. I, I do hope that it... Does reveal to some people that that Rod Serling was more than Twilight Zone, as as I mentioned, and and I, and I gotta again emphasize that I love the Twilight Zone, love it to death. I you know I just you know my favorite show of all time, and I, I would never say anything bad about. It. But at the same time, the fact that 
nobody knows about some of these other shows does you know bothers me and that's one of the reasons i wrote the book so i hope people do become exposed to that those shows and realize that he was more than that that particular series and and the second thing i hope that it spurs somebody gets to the right ears somewhere who might have some of these shows that we think no longer exist that haven't been released commercially or whatever and spurs them to release some of this stuff uh, you know, particularly, you know, like like Playhouse ninety, um, you know, classic television series. I certainly wrote ten episodes of it. Um, Pat, um, not that Requiem for Heavyweight has been released commercially. The Comedian has been released commercially, but there and you know, but everything else has been released uh, on the secondhand, you know, kind of bootleg market. And I would love to see a nice full class production of Playhouse ninety. You know, certainly Rod Serling's Playhouse ninety and nice transfers and audio and everything. You know, that would be really nice if. You know, if this kind of uh, you know perks up somebody's ears to that kind of thing, you know that would be great. Uh, I hope that some of that some of that happens. And 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 really, this is a this book is a tribute to Rod Serling. So I hope people just read it and get uh, you know get an appreciation for um, you know for his career and for for his talent. Do you see that his 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 reputation or, or uh, people's interest in Rod Serling? Have you seen? How has it been over the years? Is it does it need a little bit of a boost again? You know, because I, I like his stuff a lot too. You know, I love Twilight Zone too. So, I'm just curious about that. It um, I think it's going through a bit of a renaissance now. You know, not nice for me. You know, I, I really do. I, I think um, well, you know, Jordan Peele is doing this reboot of the Twilight Zone. Hmm. Um, so that is certainly going to add some uh, attention to the Sterling legacy, so to speak. Um, that's coming up fairly soon. And you know, we just did a um. You know, uh, I'm a member of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, where a charity that you know um, uh, works to preserve Serling's legacy and promote Serling's legacy. And and we just did an event uh, in July uh, called Serling Fest uh, mm-hmm. that was you know a blast, very well attended, and we showed a lot of you know a lot of things. We had a lot of um, you know different speakers and everything. So you know, so that you know that's going on. We've had you know there's the Rod Serling Award for promoting social justice that the um, uh, that they give out in uh, in Ithaca College, actually in in Los Angeles every year. Um, so um, you know that's something that's going on, and I think that's certainly yeah. I, th- I think that you know what it is. There are so many people in Hollywood right now who owe their creative life to Sterling, so to speak. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, you know, and they, and they, and they acknowledge it. You know, people like J.J. J. Abrams, people like uh, you know Matt Weiner, uh, who worshipped Rod Sterling. Um, Guillermo del Toro, you know, loved Night Gallery, one of his favorite shows, you know, worshipped it, just won an Academy Award, you know. So, um, so these people, um, they appreciate Sterling, and I think they, you know, uh, are kind of bringing in an awareness to him through their own work. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to any difficulties you had in finishing the book or getting it published and how you overcame those? Well, um, finishing the book, I didn't have too much trouble other than, um, other than you know the length and the, and the editing, this book was uh, the first draft of this book, and I knew this was obviously a first draft and was never going to be published this way. But the first draft was about two hundred and sixty thousand words, mm. and about about twelve hundred manuscript pages. So <laughs> I knew that no, no publisher was going to publish that. So I had to edit the heck out of this thing. Um, so I ended up getting it down to uh, well, well, the, the published version is going to be about four hundred, about five hundred and fifty pages, I think. Mm. Uh, nice. Yeah, but um, as far as getting it published um i also did know that it was a bit of a niche uh you know subject and if it wasn't completely twilight zone that it wasn't really going to appeal to the mass market commercial publisher mm-hmm. uh so so i did get you know of course i got you know, rejected by plenty of plenty of those mm-hmm. um which was fine and um it's being published by the university press of mississippi and and i'm so glad that i that i went with them and that they you know they went with me because they've done a, a incredible job 
of everything of the the cover art the um the layout the pictures the everything it's just it's going to be a really beautiful book mm-hmm. um, and 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 they and they gave me a really great editor and and she was just um terrific right from the right from the get-go um emily oh now i'm gonna forget my terrific editor's name emily uh, but uh, um but anyway (laughs) i'm a little little brain brain freeze here but but um so yeah so she helped me get it down to where it needed to be as well so uh so yeah so i i'm very very happy with where the book ended up And, and one of the nice things is that uh the reason i didn't have too much trouble finishing the book was that, believe it or not, the, the one nice thing was I had, uh, I had a very clear picture of how this book would be structured from the, from the time I started. I could see exactly where those videographies would come in and where an essay would come in here and a, and a biographical piece would come in here. And it just kind of, it just really went according to plan. And, and the final product is very, very close to the way I envisioned it to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm very happy about that. And, and get it in. So it's coming out October 16th. And uh, through University Press in Mississippi, and I, I can't wait. I can't wait for people to be able to read it. So, is it, does the the press have sort of a series that this fits into, or or what's the connection um, with Mississippi? If they've done, well, um, they've done a lot of television books, you know, mm. a lot of books about television history and film history, and really um, all sorts of pop culture history. Mm. Um, so it fits into that uh, realm. There aren't any other you know, Twilight Zone books or. Or anything like that, but it definitely fits into their general, uh, you know, theme of, of uh, you know pop culture history. Mm-hmm. And um, and the only other connection is you know that that, that Emmett Till story, of course, happened in Mississippi, and that was seemed like it was almost kind of like a uh, a nice little omen there that that Mississippi came asking uh, for the you know came came along for the book, so mm-hmm. you know because as that connection too. But again, they just yeah they really they really got the book from the get go. The uh, the editor there, the publisher there, they really got what the book was, and and they didn't ask me to 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 uh, to cut it dr- that dramatically or, or change it that dramatically. Which is again one of the things that I, I knew going in was that that certain publishers were going to ask me to do something particular, and gets into kind of inside baseball to tell you. But but I knew there was something particular they were going to ask me to do that I couldn't do, and and Mississippi never asked me to do it. So I, I said, okay, great. Um, you know, so I went with them. <laughs> nice. So do you have a, a future writing project in mind, or I have a well, I have a couple of yeah, a couple of things I'm working on right now actually, and um, you know, I, I can tell you they are Serling related and Twilight Zone related. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably about all I can tell you. But yeah, that, okay. that's that I have going on, and, and um, yeah, harder work at the, on those. Absolutely. So, where can people find you um, online? Do you have social media or website or anything? Absolutely. The well, I set up a, a page for the book specifically on Facebook, so it's not you know my page; it's the book's page. It's, you can find it at facebook.com, and it's uh, backslash Rod Serling Dimensions. Okay. Or it might be forward slash. I believe it's. I think it's forward slash actually forward slash Rod Sterling Dimensions. Okay. Um, you can find me there, and that is just a reference to the the, the working title for the book was Dimensions of Imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I asked. That was another thing. I, I kind of knew that someone was going to ask me to change that, and they did. So I, I was okay with that. That was fine. <laughs> So, so, so that's the the Facebook page, and then if you just go to uh, University Press Mississippi, I believe it's upress.ms. Uh, upress.ms.com, I think, something like that. But if you go to their website, you'll find the, the listing for the book there. Mm-hmm. And it is already available. It's up on Amazon, available for pre-order now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, you can find it find it any of those places. Okay. Um, that's all I have. Any final thoughts? No. Just, and, uh, and just, uh, just one more thing about the... Uh, about that that Facebook page, just so people know, it's not um, you know like a constant advertisement for the book. It's actually a page dedicated to Rod Serling. So so you'll find 
obscure news items there. I post I post news clippings from you know 1946 or even earlier sometimes um, about Rod Serling. I post quotes from Rod Serling and all sorts of things. So so it's not like it's you know you go there and it's just you know all about the book. In fact, I have hardly post anything about the book lately. I'm going to have to pick that up. I think now. <laughs> okay. So. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for speaking with me. I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, please give me a good rating if you like this, or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C-R-I-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z dot com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.